you're new with us, we're uh, working our way through the Gospel of Luke, and we come to what's often referred to now as Passion Week, uh, passion from the Latin word for suffering, as these chapters are about the sufferings of Christ culminating in the crucifixion of Christ. And uh, we believe it's the most important week in human history, which is why the Gospel writers spend so much time on this particular week uh, in the life of Jesus. And uh, we'll be in uh, this, this week of, of time all the way up through Easter when, Lord willing, we finish uh, our study in Luke. So let's look at it together, uh, but before we do, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we thank you for another Sunday we have to gather together. We don't take it for granted, and we pray that today uh, you would open up our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word, that you would help us to see our Savior in this text and behold him and become more like him as a result. May our gratitude for Jesus increase as we think about the fact that he is the perfect king. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. I'm sure you've heard the phrase before, uh, a PR nightmare. A PR nightmare. When there's some kind of event that centers on a high-profile figure that goes horribly wrong and damages the image or the reputation of that particular individual. Sometimes a PR nightmare is the result of poor planning. Sometimes a PR nightmare happens when a leader acts inappropriately in public. And you can imagine that if there were a messianic PR team for Jesus, that they would have wanted Jesus to avoid the three images that we read about in Luke chapter 19 here. The PR team, you know, wants to make their leader look good at key moments. And here is Jesus at a key moment. We've been reading for chapters how Jesus was approaching Jerusalem. And now as he prepares to enter Jerusalem during Passover, where the population would swell from 80,000 to about 200,000, there was a great buzz in the city. There was a great uh, collection of ideas about what the Messiah would be like. The news cameras would be everywhere as Jesus comes into the city. He's ministered primarily to to small towns and those in small villages. And you can imagine this messianic PR team saying, Jesus, don't mess it up. This is your big moment. And this is what we see. Jesus riding on a donkey. Doesn't look very strong, does he? Jesus weeping. Shouldn't a leader keep those kinds of emotion behind closed doors? Uh, 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 Jesus cleansing the temple. Is this a leader losing his temper? You see, not everyone likes these images of Jesus. A king on a colt. Can you imagine the Queen of England rolling up on a bicycle? She rolls up in a Rolls Royce. Or can you imagine the president rolling up in a little scooter like the one on Dumb and Dumber? No, he rolls up in the beast, as they call it, the big Cadillac with the the entourage. But here's Jesus on a colt. Here's Jesus, not just weeping over the city, but the the language is literally, he's wailing. What leader does that in public? And then he's got a whip and he's taking it into the temple to cleanse it. But this is not the result of poor planning. This is not the result of Jesus being out of control. It's actually the opposite. Jesus is in full control of these events. And what Jesus is doing in these events for us is showing us what kind of king he is. And Jesus is no ordinary king. He's the king to end all kings. And his kingdom is not of this world. 
And as we behold our king in this text, I pray it would lead us to worship and obedience, for he's worthy of it. You have three particular scenes here, right? Jesus rides into Jerusalem, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, and Jesus then cleanses the temple. And John Stott argues, and I think this is accurate, that we are to see these three scenes in sequence because they're teaching us something. That Jesus has come into uh, Jerusalem on a donkey, he's accessible, he's near, you can touch him, he's gentle, he will ride into your heart. But if you do not receive him, he weeps over your unbelief. And eventually, like he cleanses the temple, you will face his judgment. And so it's a very powerful set of scenes, isn't it? Now, if you've been around the church at all, you're familiar with uh, what we call Palm Sunday, this, this text here. Um, but there are some distinctives. Let me hit a few of them from Luke's account and the others. Uh, first of all, Luke does not cite Zechariah chapter 9, though he hints that he's aware of it. And that's the prophecy that Jesus would do just what we, we, we read here. Luke is also the only one that includes Jesus weeping over the city. Also, Luke abbreviates the, the account of the temple cleansing, and he writes it as if it happens immediately, even though we know from the other Gospels that it happened the next day. I think Luke is putting it here on purpose, again, to show us sort of the sequence of events to make this theological point. Only Luke uses or substitute blessed is he for blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Strong emphasis on the kingship of Jesus. And further, Luke is the only one who adds the phrase or sentence, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Because peace is also a dominant theme in these paragraphs. You read there in verse 42, Oh, that you knew what made for peace. So he's presenting Jesus as the one who's coming into Jerusalem as the king of peace. And then finally, Luke is the only one who includes the famous rocks cry out statement, which is so wonderful. So let's look at these three stories briefly this morning in hopes that we may leave with greater gratitude to Jesus and obedience to him. First of all, the adoration of Jesus. Secondly, we'll notice the anguish of Jesus. And then finally, we'll notice the authority of Jesus. So first of all, the adoration of Jesus. In the beginning of the story, we read in verse 28 that Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem means city of peace or city of shalom. Uh, today, we often refer to, to cities with nicknames, don't we? Like Motor City is Detroit, or the city of brotherly love is Philadelphia, uh, even though their football fans are not known for their love. Um, Sin City, Still City, we live in the city of Oaks, and Jerusalem was Peace City. And here comes the Prince of Peace rolling up into Jerusalem. And we see that Jesus intentionally chooses a cult to ride on. Luke mentions that Jesus is drawn near these two villages, uh, Bethphage and Bethany, on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives. And as Jesus carefully prepares to enter the city, uh, we see that he sends, in verse 30, two of his disciples into one of the villages to find a colt that had never been ridden before. The fact that it had not been ridden indicates that it was uh, symbolic of purity, it's fit for a king, the fact that it's never been ridden before, but Jesus apparently rides it with ease, that's something about his own authority, I think, in riding an animal that had not been ridden. After all, he made the animal. And so then Jesus sends his disciples into the city to find it, and it's a very interesting story, isn't it? And he says, you go into the city, and you're going to find this particular colt, and if anyone asks you, what are you doing untying this animal that doesn't belong to you, you should just tell them the Lord needs it. Maybe you guys should try that this week with somebody's Tesla. Like, what, what are you doing in my Tesla? 
Ah, the Lord had need of it. Luke 19. No, don't do that. It's terrible, terrible application of, of this verse. I shouldn't put terrible thoughts in your head. Uh, now, this is either a prearranged plan or uh, this is Jesus' display of supernatural knowledge of, of knowing this individual. Bethany was a familiar city to Jesus. At any rate, what you see here is that it is clear that Jesus is in control as he plans on deliberately uh, riding in Jerusalem in a particular way. Now, Jesus could just walk into the city. After all, Jesus doesn't usually ask for anything. He has no real possessions. He has no place to lay his head, we read. When he makes a point later about taxes, he has to borrow someone's coin. His whole ministry is one of divine humility. So why then does he require having this particular cult to ride in to the city on? And I think it's simply to fulfill Zechariah 9.9. That this king would come into the city not to overthrow Rome, not to be a political messiah, not to come in on a war horse. He will do that later as we read in Revelation. But in his first coming, he's coming on this cult as a statement of peace, as a statement of gentleness, and as a fulfillment of that prophecy. Jesus blows up a lot of people's expectations, and how many knows God continues to mess with our expectations? God knows how to throw a good knuckleball. Just dancing around. You think you've got it figured out. <laughs> and I think this text is a good reminder that we can make the same mistake thinking that our lives are going to turn out a particular way only to have God accomplish his purposes in very, very uh, uh, strange ways, ways that we did not anticipate. Let's be encouraged by that, that God's fulfilling his purposes and we don't know uh, what his thoughts are and we can't discern uh, his ways. So Jesus is rolling in here, though, on this uh, uh, donkey, fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9, and the word is, fear not, the king is here. This donkey symbolizes peace, not political takeover. And we see here, don't we, the humility of Jesus. You know, Nietzsche, the philosopher who hated Christianity, one of the things he did not like was the humility of Jesus. He called Jesus the God of the sick and the God of the cross. Well, I'm thankful he's the God of the sick and the God of the cross. He's low on a cult. You can reach him. You can touch him. And he will ride into your heart just the way he rode into that city. You can receive him. And we are to follow him in this way of humility, right? Let's never get up on our high horse. Let's stay low. Let's stay low. Gavin Orland has a new book on humility. And he says, you know, some people think of humility as a dreary virtue. You know, they, they say, well, you know, we need to talk about it, but it's, we don't really like the topic that much. <laughs> but he says something really good uh, from, from C.S. Lewis, who says, to get even near humility, even for a moment, is like a drink of cold water to a man in the desert. I like that. It, in other words, when you're around a humble person, there's a sense of satisfaction, a sense of peace, or as Keller puts it, there is nothing more relaxing than humility. I've been thinking about that all week. Am I relaxing to be around? That's the way Jesus is. He comes in and he brings his peace because he's the man of humility. Well, let's, let's imitate him in that. And let's, let's imitate this guy who owns the donkey. I'd love to meet that fellow one day, wouldn't you? <laughs> he's like, what, the Lord needs my donkey? Take it. Now for us, that doesn't mean much probably, but that was a big time possession. 
He says, Lord, whatever you, whatever you want, it's yours. I'm a steward of it. So we see that Jesus selects this donkey for a purpose, and the second thing we see in this, uh, this section that Jesus accepts the praise of people. And praise comes first in verse 35 from his disciples who throw their cloak upon the, the animal. They know that a, a king can't ride without a saddle, so they take the only thing that they have with them, and they throw their own cloaks on it. And then they, they hold their, their king up and put him on the colt, like a team that puts his manager, his coach, up in the air after winning a championship. Some of you haven't experienced that in a long, long time for your team. I know that feeling. But here they, they, they lift Jesus up, set him on the, the, the animal, and then others begin to express glory to the king as they also spread their cloaks out on the road. Other writers tell us they were also putting palm branches uh, there on the road. It was basically like, let's roll out the red carpet for the king. And then we see in verse 37 that a greater multitude began to express praise to Jesus as he's drawing near the rejoicing and praising God with a loud voice for the mighty works that they had seen. That is the miracles of Jesus, the, the works of Jesus. And so you have now a swelling in Jerusalem of praise, an eruption of praise. Again, they don't know exactly what kind of Messiah he is yet. There's still a lot that needs to be clarified, even among his disciples. But they are right in the instinct to praise Jesus as he's worthy of it. And they're singing from Psalm, among other things, Psalm 118, which is cited there. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, if you go back, I encourage you to do this, to go back and read Psalm 118 later. It's a psalm about the victory of the Davidic king, and the king is surrounded by various enemies who are surrounding nations. And what's ironic in this account and the other writers is that the enemies of Jesus are not those outside of Israel. They're actual, actually within Israel's own leadership. And so we're going to see that develop. Luke then says that they're saying peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, what does that sound like? Where have we heard those words before? Well, about 10 years ago when we started this series, during the, uh, the birth narrative, right? We read it in Luke uh, chapter 2 that the angels are singing, right? Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among, uh, on earth to the people he favors. So think about this. At the birth of Jesus, this peace is proclaimed. Now at the near the end of Jesus' life, his earthly life here, peace is proclaimed. And he's going to rise from the dead, ascend to the Father's right hand, return again and bring about total peace. And so notice here then that Jesus never refuses this praise. He doesn't tell them, stop, guys. You know, Paul and Barnabas had to do that when they went to Lystra. They wanted to worship them. And they're like, we're not gods. Knock it off. Well, the Pharisees, though, were upset about this. Here comes the cold water committee in verse 39. They say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. <laughs> How dare they give you praise? Now, if you're an energetic, enthusiastic Christian, you'll meet some Pharisees at some point in your life who do something very similar. They're like, you guys need to calm down a little bit with the Jesus stuff. <laughs> when I was in college, I was a new convert, and I was on fire. I was what I called ignorance on fire. Um, and me and my roommate, my roommate played third base when he got to play. He actually didn't play very much. Uh, I, <laughs> but he loves the Lord. Uh, <laughs> that's what matters, friends. Uh, I called him Skillet because every time the ball would hit his glove, it was like it hit a skillet. He couldn't catch it, just bounce off. Like, come on, Skillet. 
and a uh, really stocky guy, little beady eyes. He's a pastor in Indiana and just a, a wonderful pastor. At any rate, we were up late at night, every night for a couple of weeks writing songs, which, which never made the Billboard Top 50 or, you know, Michael W. Smith and Marita and Woodyard. We, we never made the, uh, the list back then. But our coach was telling us to calm down. <laughs> he was like, boys, we had a doubleheader to play tomorrow. You got to go to bed. Stop writing praise songs. Well, it's kind of like that with the, with the Pharisees. Jesus, tell them to knock it off. Why are they praising you like this? And instead of telling the disciples to stop praising him, you notice his answer. If they were silent, even the rocks would cry out. You can't withhold this praise. This praise has to get out of the heart. Why? He says, I'm worthy of praise from the whole creation. The whole creation, Romans 8, is groaning for redemption, and the whole creation is groaning to praise our Savior, Jesus Christ. He's like, you may suppress it in these people around me, but you can't ultimately suppress this praise. This praise, it has to get out. It has to get out. Have you ever gotten in trouble in the library for making too much noise? (laughs) Or have you ever watched Jimmy Fallon's The Silent Library episode when he's with the Roots and they're doing these competitions of goofy things and they they can't laugh? And it's impossible. Like That laugh's got to get out. you You can't keep it in. Or like on an airplane, they tell me that you're more emotional on an airplane, at least I take that as a good word of comfort, because I usually cry more on, on planes for some reason, altitude, homesickness, et cetera. Um, and uh, you, know, you don't wanna cry in public watching a, a movie on an airplane, but, but you, so you can't help it sometimes. Like I was watching that movie, Ford and Ferrari, and the lady comes by and she's like, are you okay, sir? I'm like, uh, I'm great, I'm great. Like, I love Fords, you know? Like, it, it just, I'm trying not to cry, but this thing has got me all torn up inside, you know? <laughs> and, and, and Jesus is saying, that praise cannot be stifled. It cannot be suppressed. It's gotta come out because they recognize who I am. Jesus gives us peace and we give him praise. We give him praise. I like that. So let's worship the king. We used to sing the old song, ain't no rock gonna cry in my place. Right? Well, that's our king riding in. Secondly, we see here the anguish of Jesus. Not only do we see the adoration of Jesus, but we see him now going into the city. In his first display, as he's looking at the city, it says he wept over it, or he's wailing over it. This is a lament. This is not just a crying on an airplane sort of thing. This is Jesus with profound sadness that the people of Jerusalem, by and large, had rejected their Messiah. And again, we have character of Jesus to emulate here, that as he looks at lostness, he does so with profound sadness. His first, his first reaction is not anger toward people not being able to see him for who he is. His first reaction is tears. So it's a triumphal entry, but it's also a tearful entry. And he's lamenting like he did previously in Luke 13 over their rejection of him. And he says, if you only knew what made for peace. What makes for peace is knowing Jesus. If you only knew that. And yet he's torn in two as he realizes that they don't see him rightly. It's like a person who hears the gospel regularly and is around spiritual realities all the time, they're staring them right in the face, and they say, I can't see it. I can't see what all the excitement's about. 
And Jesus has weeping eyes over blind, unbelieving eyes. We should never think of Jesus as being unmoved by unbelief. Jesus is profoundly moved. And we follow him in this. Paul says in Philippians 3, I say now with tears, many are enemies of the cross. This willful blindness will lead many to destruction. Verses 43 and 4, he begins to talk about the destruction of Jerusalem. We'll get into more of that later. Verses 43 and 4, all of this came about in A.D. 70. city was surrounded, stones torn down, temple destroyed, streets filled with blood. Caesar wanted to show the superiority of Rome. And this would all happen just as Jesus said it would happen according to God's justice. And he says, you did not know the time of your visitation. You rejected me. As we read in John, he came into his own, and his own did not receive him. They had opportunity. And it's really sad when you miss an opportunity. I read recently where 12 different publishers turned down Rowling's pitch for Harry Potter. Bad move, right? And here is Jesus offering the world something infinitely better, and many missed the opportunity. He says, if you only knew, if you would have only received me, and if you're not a Christian today, we are glad you're here, and I want you to see the compassion of Jesus. I want you to see that he welcomes you. He will receive you. You can reject him, but you reject him by walking through his tears. He weeps over unbelief. And let us take our tears for unbelievers as well, church, to the Lord in prayer and ask for the Lord to open up eyes that they would see Jesus for who he is. That's the anguish of Jesus. Finally, we see here the authority of Jesus. Jesus goes into the temple and we see that he not only has a compassion for the lost, but he has a passion for true worship. He says, and he entered the temple, began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house should be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So think about this, it's Passover, there are thousands of pilgrims there, they need animals to sacrifice, you don't usually just bring them with you, and so they would buy them there. But this had become a monopoly. It had also included the exploitation of the poor. And so they had turned the temple in that which was to be a house of prayer into a den of robbers, or as some translated, a cave of thugs. And all of this was taking place, we read elsewhere, in the court of the Gentiles, where the outsiders had a place to gather and belong and pray. But the guys here weren't interested in praying, they were interested in wheeling and dealing. And Jesus wants to restore the purpose of the Father's house, or express the purpose of the Father's house. And so he cites Isaiah 56, which I would encourage you to read later as well. And in Isaiah 56, he cites this phrase, my house should be called a house of prayer for all peoples. In Isaiah 56, this is about the worldwide mission of our God and how uh, the heading in your Bible may say something like salvation for foreigners, salvation for those outside of Jerusalem. And Jesus is referring to that, that this place of prayer, especially the court of Gentiles, was intended to be a place of evangelism and prayer so that they could experience grace. But there was no prayer nor evangelism happening here because they had turned it into sort of a spiritual Costco. And it's too hard to pray. You can't pray in Costco, right? And so he's zealous about the proper worship of God. And he then cites, in addition to Isaiah 56, Jeremiah 7. The phrase den of robbers is in Jeremiah 7. And in that chapter, the people are being presumptuous. They're saying, we can live however we want to 
After all, we have the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And here, Jesus is basically saying, you're repeating past sins of Israel. You think that you can have this sort of injustice, this exploitation of the poor, this kind of corruption, and be cool with God. And the pretense of piety angers Jesus. And we pray today that he would clean out our own hearts and turn over the table, right, in our own hearts where we have hypocrisy. And Jesus does it very strongly, doesn't he? There's no excuse me, pardon me. We read elsewhere that he has a whip. And you notice the authority of Jesus when he calls it his temple. This is his place. This is, this is his place, his temple. And I think the cleansing of the temple here is anticipating the further destruction of the temple that would happen a few years later. And it's signaling a new era of redemptive history that Jesus is now the new temple of God. He is the place where we meet God. Uh, we don't need to go to Jerusalem to pray. We can pray right here in North Raleigh because Jesus Christ has been crucified for us and when he was tore the veil of the temple and has uh, risen from the dead, ascended to heaven, and he's interceding for us and we pray to our Father through the mediating work of Jesus Christ. He wants his people still to be a praying people and so Jesus cleanses this temple. And then finally we read in these latter verses sort of a transition into the, the, the following chap, uh, chapters that Jesus then begins to teach in the temple. It says that some people wanted to destroy him and then others, notice verse uh, 48, were hanging on his words. And that's the, those are the two groups you see now. The tension with these groups is building to the cross. Some want to kill Jesus and they will. Some find in Jesus the words of life. And they follow him, they worship him. What was he teaching? Well, if you just peek into chapter 20, verse one, it says that he was preaching the gospel. He's in this temple preaching about himself, preaching about him being the savior, preaching the good news to hurting people and wounded people and weary people and sinful people. Well, that's gonna then lead to a series of controversies as Jesus is in the temple, and he takes up various questions and issues and gives answers to them, as we'll look at in the next three or four weeks in Luke's gospel. And so the cross is getting closer, and the tension is building more and more and more. So church, here is our king. He's the king on a colt. He's the king in tears. And he's the king with all authority. And I would submit to you that he is the perfect king. He's the perfect king. And if you haven't received him as your king, that's our prayer that you would today. Henry Nouwen said, Jesus went to Jerusalem to announce the good news to the people of the city, and Jesus knew that he was going to put a choice before them. Will you be my disciple, or will you be my executioner? That's where Jesus is going. You have to do something with Jesus. Will you be his executioner, or will you be his disciple? The good news is he will have us. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Paul says, he himself is our peace. He will ride into your heart just the way he rode into that city. And he would go to the cross so that we could know this peace. He would reconcile us with our God. So there's good news today for sinners and sufferers that we can have everlasting peace through Jesus Christ, the crucified, risen, reigning, and returning king. So church, let's praise him for his eternal peace. Let's seek him in prayer as we unload our cares to him. And let's hang on his word. 
Let's hang on his word until we see his face. Thank you, Father, for your word this morning. Write its truths upon our hearts, we pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you, we adore you. We pray for grace to emulate you as we walk in this world as your ambassadors, reflecting as best we can your character, your humility, your wisdom, your truthfulness. We pray you give us opportunities this week to bear witness to your name. And we look forward to the day in which you return again. We look forward to the day in which we see your face and all things are made new. We thank you for that hope we have. Truly, you are the Prince of Peace. And we know it came at a great cost. And now as we take the Lord's Supper, we want to ponder what it costs you to bring us these blessings. We pray that you would increase our gratitude as we do so. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen.